I don't quite understand the Republicans' posture on this. They have the votes. There is no way that 20 senators who are Republicans are going to cross over and find the president guilty. And I don't understand the strategy. It just makes it look more and more sinister that they're hiding things and knowing full well that they're going to win in the final analysis no matter what. This is about politics, and everyone knows uh, why the Democrats would want to put those witnesses on. From the Republican perspective, the kind of mischief that they would want to pursue and where it would go from there. If anybody thinks that it would just be you know, two or three people that they would call and then they'd be satisfied, I, I've got some property to sell them. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a windy Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have two books out called How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Blue Jay Legal. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com, bluejlegal.com. The impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump is underway, and as expected, it has come with its share of controversy. On December 18, 2019, President Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. As of the date of this recording, which is January 29, 2020, Republicans have uniformly resisted demands to call witnesses and subpoena new evidence not presented in the House's investigation. But a vote is expected soon. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll discuss the impeachment trial, specifically the witness, the issue of witnesses, new evidence, its constitutionality, the House managers, the impact of the trial on the presidency, and of course, the potential outcome. And to help us explore this topic, we've got two great guests for you today. First up, we have Tom Jipping, the Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a Senior Legal Fellow for the Heritage Foundation. Tom joined Heritage in May of 2018 after serving for 15 years on the staff of Senator Orrin Hatch, including several years as his chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. And our next guest is attorney Alan Barron. Mr. Barron's practice is focused on high-profile cases in the federal enforcement arena and complex civil litigation. He also serves as special counsel to the government in various entities, and specifically in May of 2009, he was retained as special impeachment counsel by the Judiciary Committee of the United States House of Representatives regarding the impeachment of United States District Judge Samuel B. Kent. As you may remember, Judge Kent was impeached by the House of Representatives on June 19, 2009, and then resigned from office on June 30, 2009. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, Tom, as we get started, I'd like to turn to you just to give us a little bit of background about what has happened up to date. We're here on January 29th. We know that things will occur after this podcast, but tell us where we are so far with the impeachment. Well, as you said, the House has impeached the president on two counts. 
uh, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. There was a about a 30-day pause in the process when Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi declined to hand it off to the Senate so that the Senate impeachment trial could begin, but she did do that. The trial has begun. Both sides have made their opening presentations. And uh, as we're talking today, the senators are asking questions uh, through Chief Justice John Roberts, who's presiding over the trial, asking questions of, of either or both sides. That's going to continue uh, probably for another day. And then the Senate will get into votes and, and debates about uh, the a- actual decisions about whether to uh, to subpoena additional witnesses or evidence. Well, Alan, before we talk about the, the potential for witnesses, let's talk about the players here. Who's on the president's defense team? What's going on with the House managers? And how does Chief Justice Roberts play into this? Well, let's start with Roberts. <laughs> he, he really doesn't have much in the way of power. Uh, he's there pursuant to the Constitution, but his role is very limited. Uh, I recall when Chief Justice Rehnquist um, stepped down from his role in the Clinton impeachment, he was very relieved. He said something like, I'm glad I can leave here and get back to real work. Uh, So the role of the Chief Justice is pretty limited, and any rulings that he makes can be overturned uh, by a majority vote in the Senate, which must be a very weird uh, experience for the Chief Justice uh, of the United States. Uh, with regard to the House managers, I've worked closely with Chairman Schiff, who is the lead House manager, and I work with him on two impeachments. They were judicial impeachments. He's a very, very bright guy, Stanford, Harvard Law School, very uh, serious guy, very focused. And uh, I think just from my observation, he has taken a leading role in this and done a very good job. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the Republicans. Um, I think they have, a, in my view at least, a tough row to hoe. Uh, they're doing the best they can with uh, what they have to work with. Um, but I think both sides have worked very hard. They've obviously put in a tremendous amount of work, and um, they've done a good job for their respective sides. Tom, tell us about uh, President Trump's team, Dershowitz, uh, White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, and Sekulow. Well, the the mixture of lawyers that he has is, as you just suggested, both uh, some of the lawyers from the White House Counsel's office, Pat Cipollone, who is the White House Counsel, <clears throat> Mr. Philbin, who's the Deputy White House Counsel, and then a few from, from the outside. Uh, Jay Sekulow, who has been in the role of the president's personal lawyer for for some time. Uh, and then people like uh, former U.S. Circuit Judge Ken Starr, former Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz, to address uh, some of the broader uh, constitutional issues, those that are not specific to the articles of impeachment that we have here. So it's a, it's a mixture of, uh, they're all very good lawyers, but lawyers who are able to address different parts of the picture, of the narrative, uh, that the president's team wants to produce. And I've, uh, Alan and I actually have a connection because one of the impeachments that he worked on for uh, U.S. District Judge Thomas Porteous, I was uh-huh. the deputy chief counsel of the impeachment trial committee uh, that actually did the trial for that impeachment. And so the team that they have together, I think, uh, is a, is an interesting one. And I'm, I'm learning some, even though I've been involved in impeachment trials before. 
Alan, let's talk about the constitutionality of the framework of this trial. I mean, we you've talked about that that uh, Chief Justice Roberts really doesn't have power because he can be overruled by the very people he's trying the case in front of. What's the framework of how this trial works? I mean, or and there's been a lot of noise about documents and witnesses, but let's talk about this, the framework first. Well, of course, um, the the uh, House goes first. I mean, they have, in a sense, the burden. You know, what's interesting is that in one of the impeachments I tried, one of the issues that came up before the Senate is what is the burden of proof in a an impeachment trial? And the Senate struggled with it. And then they came back and said, and I think people will find this kind of interesting, there is no set burden of proof. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not a bare majority of the evidence, the weight of the evidence. They said, in effect, it's up to each senator to decide for himself or herself or the burden that they want to uh, utilize in making their decision, which I think would kind of surprise most people. But it gives you an indication of how different this is from a normal court case. Robert's role is, you know, as I said before, is, is very limited. There's not much he can do. Uh, and if he does anything, it can be overruled. Well, and Tom, let's think about how that works with the senators taking oaths. I mean, there have been some complaints about uh, the potential impartiality of the senators and a constitutional requirement for impartiality. Uh, how does that shake out? Well, um, you know, impartiality is one of those words that means different things in different contexts. Uh, I think the the oath that they take to do impartial justice is is a symbolic step, you know, on, on both sides. I think at least in this impeachment process, certainly most Democratic senators had already said whether they thought the president was guilty or not or what they believed he had done. Uh, Republican senators had already, at least some of them had already said that they thought he should be acquitted and so on and so forth. So it, it, the, the oath of impartial cannot mean that senators have literally no opinion about this, that they're coming at this with a blank slate. So kind of what Alan was referring to a minute ago, it's a different idea than what you're looking for with jurors uh, in a criminal case. And the Senate's role in an impeachment trial is kind of a combination of jury and judge. Uh, Alan's correct that uh, since the Constitution gives the sole power to try impeachments to the Senate, the Senate ultimately has authority to decide these different issues about witnesses and evidence and this kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think uh, like the burden of proof, each senator is responsible for what he or she uh, views as an impartial approach to this. And I'm sure uh, there's there's different um, different understandings of that from one senator to the next. And also, if I may interject, um, I think that it's very important for people to understand that yes, this has the trappings of a legal process, but in the final analysis, it is a political process. The founders, uh, father, founding fathers frequently allude to that. And as we go through this, you can see that it is not a typical judicial proceeding. This is very much a political proceeding. Let's talk about that in terms of how the the Constitution set up the House of Representatives to be the charging entity and the Senate to be the trial. Just from the standpoint that the Senate is, you know, 100 senators and the House of Representatives is 435 people, according to the population. What was the thinking of the founding fathers to put the obligation for the trial in the Senate where all the states are represented equally? Um, there was a lot of struggle about that. They didn't know where, when they were 
trying to figure out which way to go. The question should it be in the Supreme Court? And there was a lot of back and forth among the founding fathers as to where it ought to go. And eventually they decided that they would leave it in the Congress, but break it down into two parts, the House having the sole power to impeach, the Senate having the sole power to try an impeachment. You know, all things considered, it has worked quite well over the centuries. We're really talking about centuries. You know, there have been eight convictions in the Senate. All of them were U.S. district were U.S. judges. I don't know that they were all district judges, but they were all judges. And it's it's a cumbersome process, uh, but it works. It does work. And I think, however, it's a good thing we don't have to invoke it very often. Uh, but it does work. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, it, I'd agree with that. It, it is an it is a kind of a strange provision or part of the Constitution. It's a it's a process that. Um, the founders deem necessary, but we would certainly hope it would never have to be used because there wouldn't be such misconduct in our public officials. Um, the founders during the Constitutional Convention, they were really focused on it as a check on the president. And yet, as, as Alan mentioned, most of the impeachments and all of the impeachment convictions in our history have been of judges. Uh, so that that's kind of but but the founders did view it as a check on the president, and I think since our system of government is is based on elections and the power of or the authority of the people to choose their own leaders, that uh, uh, it certainly wasn't intended to be used as a like a political weapon as a way of just battling you know a president that that was opposed for various reasons, and I think the the split between the House and the Senate, it's, it's, you know, kind of parallels the idea of both are involved in the legislative process, too. You don't have all of the power to do something like this just in one place. And I think that that's consistent with the overall kind of division, separation of power, checks and balances that exist in the rest of our system. Well, Alan, it seems just kind of silly to ask the question, but I will anyway. Is the Senate the final arbiter in this impeachment? Is there any further appeal on either side? That's a good question. And the answer is essentially that the Senate is the final arbiter. One of the other impeachment cases that I handled, a federal judge named Walter Nixon. It's funny how certain names seem to show up in the impeachment context. But this was Walter Nixon, not Richard. And um, he was tried. He was convicted in the Senate and he was removed from office. But the trial was held before so-called Rule 11 Committee. The Senate found that um, when they had the full Senate there, ostensibly, to try these cases, this is back around in the the 1930s is when it became a real problem, they they decided this is just not working. So they adopted a so-called Rule 11, which basically sets up a committee of 12 senators, six from each party, and they take the evidence. They listen to the witnesses, question the witnesses, and then they do not decide the case. They then write up what they have received in evidence from both sides and then report back to the full Senate, which meets behind closed doors and reaches its conclusion. They come out and each senator stands in uh, his and her place and they, are, you know, they go through the role and decide guilty or not guilty. So that's the process that really we, we they decided to use with regard to lower officials. I don't know what they would do with the vice president. I don't know whether they'd feel they needed to uh, have the full Senate sit on that or not. Certainly with regard to a president, 
the full Senate sits. Excellent. Well, thank you. And before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight Platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at bluejaylegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com, bluejaylegal.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Tom Jipping, the Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a Senior Legal Fellow for the Heritage Foundation, and Attorney Alan Barron, a Special Counsel to U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee for on Impeachments. And we've been discussing the impeachment trial of President Trump and largely the procedure of it, but let's take a jump into the morass of witnesses. Uh, certainly it's become a political football between the Republican senators and the Democratic senators, whether or not witnesses are going to be called. We've had some extracurricular witnesses with Lev Parnas and his secret recording Uh, We've also had the bombshell report recently from John Bolton saying that I'm a first-party witness to President Trump's quid pro quo requirement for uh, aid to Ukraine. So, Tom, let's turn to you and and kind of see where you shake out on the witnesses. Well, the the decision about witnesses, obviously the House subpoenaed certain witnesses to testify from the Trump administration. The Trump administration refused to allow them to testify. One big point that's been made repeatedly by the president's legal team is that the House did not seek to enforce those subpoenas. The ordinary process for an investigating committee, if they issue subpoenas that aren't honored, is to go to court and enforce the subpoenas. They didn't do that. Instead, they turned the refusal to comply with a subpoena into an impeachable offense. In, in my view, that's probably the most unusual and kind of transparent of the two articles. Uh, it's not a serious approach to witnesses to issue a subpoena that probably no president would simply obey and then turn that refusal into an impeachable offense. But over in the Senate side, then, the the witnesses that Democrats want are those witnesses that didn't testify in the House. So you're in a position where, you know, the House could have pursued those witnesses but didn't, and now Democrats want the Senate to go ahead and do that. The Senate's going to take up this issue in two steps. One is a step that was not in the rules for the Clinton impeachment trial, and that is Uh, First, deciding whether the consideration of calling witnesses will be in order at all. Uh, And if if, uh, that would pass, then the whole issue of witnesses would simply disappear. Uh, if, If they get to the second step, it would be deciding whether to issue subpoenas for individual witnesses. And the majority has, you know, a couple of different strategies for defeating that effort. But I think uh, that question of of why did the House not pursue the very witnesses uh, that they now want the Senate to call is a very significant one during this trial. Well, let me ask the question in reverse then, assuming that the obstruction of justice 
or obstruction of Congress rather count is based on those witnesses. If the Senate did call those witnesses, wouldn't that cause the article to be eliminated? I mean, wouldn't that eliminate that that article? No, I mean the, the he was impeached for uh, his actions in relation to the House, and right. I, I I do think that if they were to testify, it, it would sort of further show what I think is something like the absurdity of that count. But, you know, the House chose to say, you you didn't do what we wanted you to do, and so we're going to impeach you for it. Uh, That impeachment's been done, and uh, the the Senate's either going to convict or acquit on that count. Right. That makes sense. Well, what about uh, this testimony from Lev Parnas and and, uh, John Bolton? Do you expect those two witnesses to be called, assuming that the Senate votes to hear witnesses, and recent news articles have indicated that McConnell's, uh, Mitch McConnell has indicated he does not have the votes in place to block witnesses. So assuming that we're going to call witnesses, and assuming that we call, uh, do you expect Bolton and Parnas to be called? I think I, think I would left Par- left Parnas is kind of a shadowy you know, secondary fringe figure in this narrative. I mean, I think he's, I don't know whether he's out of jail, but um, he's somebody who worked for Rudy Giuliani and and had some kind of role in Ukraine at some point. But um, so he, I I think he's a a real fringe kind of a character here. John Bolton, obviously, is is a major one. His manuscript, which caused a big uproar recently, um, at at least at the time that we're talking about this, is being reviewed by the National Security Council, which apparently has indicated that it includes classified information. So there's a lot of controversy about just what that book is, what the motivation is behind it. But I suspect that if, if John Bolton is subpoenaed to testify, it'll be because of the position that he had in the White House during these events. And I'm, I don't think that um, the controversy over the book will necessarily change that. Would you think that Bolton would be called as a witness behind closed doors? Well, I think that um, I think the real interest of those who would want to call witnesses is, is having them do so publicly. But remember, under the rules, the way witnesses are handled is that if a witness is subpoenaed, and of course, the subpoenas that would be issued to these witnesses could be resisted by the administration in the very same way that they were on the House side, which would mean possible a court intervention. But under the rules, if they are subpoenaed to testify, they must first be deposed by both sides. And only after that, those depositions would the Senate decide whether they would testify in person or whether, as in the Clinton impeachment trial, portions of their tape depositions would be played. So it's not simply issue a subpoena and boom, the next day that person is sitting there in the well of the Senate uh, spilling their guts. Right. And Alan, you mentioned that this is a, a political football in a sense, and it seems like the disclosure of evidence, you know, it's the you know, first Lev Parnas and now John Bolton. And, you know, why didn't this stuff come out during the House uh, impeachment trial? I I hear the argument that uh, when people who have been subpoenaed uh, or people who have been requested refuse to show up, uh, that that the Democrats should have gone to to court. And it's interesting that the Republicans are arguing in a case that's pending in court exactly the opposite. That is that the court doesn't have any jurisdiction to hear 
the issue of whether a witness has to show up. So I take the whole argument with a big grain of salt. But it's it just seems to me that the issue of, of witnesses, I, I don't quite understand the Republicans' posture on this because they have the votes. There is no way that 20 uh, senators who are Republicans are going to cross over and find the president guilty. So they're going to they're going to quote win the case. So why are they being so so resistant to putting on a, the testimony? Uh, the, there shouldn't be any real big surprises because a lot of this stuff has already come out. And I don't understand the strategy. It just makes it look more and more sinister that they're hiding things and knowing full well that they're going to win in the final analysis, no matter what. Uh, certainly no matter on the basis of whatever ever any of these witnesses could say. So I, I don't quite understand the Republican strategy from a PR point of view. And a lot of this is PR, political PR. I think it looks terrible from the Republican side. They're trying to hide something, even though they're going to win. I, I think the answer to that is, uh, obviously, there is PR management is a you know, a growth industry in Washington. But I think the answer to that is the, that both sides, every, everyone knows what Democrats would want to do with those witnesses if they could get them before the Senate. Everybody knows. It's not simply a matter of winning the case. As, as Alan pointed out, this is a political process and there are, there's you know, only certain parallels to an actual criminal proceeding in a real in a real court. This is about politics and everyone knows uh, why the Democrats would want to uh, put those witnesses on and the kind of, from the Republican perspective, the kind of mischief that they would want to pursue the, the, and where it would go from there. If anybody thinks that it would just be, you know, two or three people that they would call and then they'd be satisfied. I, I've got some property to sell them. So uh, that's the answer to that. The objective is not simply to quote, win the case. Uh, everybody's known from the beginning, the president will be acquitted. It's to minimize the potential for other consequences and other sorts of political, as I say, mischief, at least from the Republican perspective. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I want to take the opportunity now to let you share your final thoughts and your contact information if you'd like to share it with our listeners. But the things I'd like you to talk about are just that mischief. I mean, let's give a prediction here about how this trial is going to affect the election and how it's going to affect the presidency as you wrap up. Alan, let's turn to you first. My view is this. I think that what Trump is charged with this collusion and this this uh, effort to get uh, uh, the Ukraine to interfere in our, our election and holding up the uh, four, nearly $400 million in aid that had been authorized by the Congress. I think what is involved here is far worse, far more serious than anything that was involved in the investigation of Richard Nixon, which was essentially a domestic issue, and certainly the uh, impeachment of uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, which was certainly not admirable conduct, but didn't have anything to do with the national interest or our, uh, our allies who are confronting the Russians. So I think this is an extremely serious case. And I think the precedent that will come out of this, uh, because I think we all recognize that the president is highly likely to be acquitted. I think it's very, very dangerous. Does it now mean that the president can engage in these kinds of relationships with foreign governments? 
to help in domestic affairs? Does it mean that the president can basically uh, stiff a congressional investigation into his own conduct? These are very serious issues. I know some people think that the Article 2 is more serious than Article 1. And so I think we're in very, very dangerous territory. And we'll have to see how it all shakes out in the long run. Uh, But in the short run, it's very dangerous. Tom, let's turn to you and uh, see if you can uh, give some response to those tough questions. Well, the, the president was impeached for a very specific reason, and that is that he supposedly solicited interference in this year's election. There's no evidence for that. We've heard it said 10,000 times. The president's critics want us to sort of fill in the blank by that, by the sort of speculation that they've offered or by saying, well, it's not A or B, so it's got to be that. But there's no evidence for that. In fact, there are legitimate reasons for the actions that the president took toward Ukraine. And and when there's no evidence for the corrupt motive that you're alleging, but there are legitimate alternative explanations, that simply does not rise to an impeachable offense. And as to the second article, this is not a matter of the president simply stiffing Congress. The the House issued subpoenas that I don't believe any president would just automatically honor. The founders, by separating powers, expected each branch to be resisting the demands of the other, which is why the House's failure to get this sorted out in court is so glaring. And in the absence of doing that, when they take just an all or nothing, you know, when we say jump, you ask how high sort of approach to another branch, that's what's dangerous. Turning what is essentially the the expected operation of the separation of powers into an impeachable offense trying to remove the president, that is what is dangerous. So we will see how it'll play out. I think it will I think the trial will be shorter than probably most of us thought going into it. But I think uh, people who have been paying attention to it perhaps have learned a little more about this kind of obscure part of our system. Uh, and I and I think people, I, I hope that people return to the idea that in this country, the people have authority to choose their own leaders. We should not be turning to impeachment to interfere with that process for essentially political reasons. Uh, as to contact information, uh, the Heritage Foundation is at heritage.org. You can easily find a lot of what we've published on impeachment and what I've written. I'm also on Twitter at uh, Tom Jipping, T-O-M-J-I-P-P-I-N-G, and I post there on this issue as well, and I I appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss these matters. Great. Thank you. And I'd like to express our thanks to Alan Barron and Tom Chipping for being with us today. So if you'd like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.